The wild, wild card weekend lived up to the hype in the NFL. We saw terrible coaching decisions. We saw a crazy comeback in Jacksonville. One crazy play in Cincinnati. An unexpectedly close game in Buffalo. Maybe the last game ever from Tom Brady as Dak Prescott makes a statement. And oh, Kirk Cousins does what Kirk Cousins does. As Daniel Jones makes a statement up there in Minnesota. A whole lot more from around the NFL. I also talked a little NBA. All that and more coming up next on the Rami Lavie podcast. Stay tuned. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the things I talk about on this podcast a lot is the stigma against mental health. I think, unfortunately, there has been a stigma, but we're slowly breaking it. And if you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, overwhelmed, or maybe you just want to talk to someone, today's sponsor, BetterHelp, is here to help you. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help access your specific needs and then you get matched with a therapist in another 48 hours plus you can exchange unlimited text messages and everything you share is completely confidential so i talk about on this podcast how your mindset towards things changes everything one of the things that i learned in therapy was that join the two million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced better help therapist get 10 percent off your first month at betterhelp.com slash rami that's my first name that's better help b-e-t-t-e-r H-E-L-P dot com slash R-A-M-I, my first name, Rami. If you use that link, the link is in the description, in the podcast notes. If you use that link, you'll get 10% off and it'll also help me out. So please do that. I'm telling you it's worth it. Do it today. Welcome back to the Rami La Vie podcast, episode 128. It is January today. 18th it's wednesday and we got a lot to talk about a lot happened in the nfl uh some wild comebacks some wild upsets and overall a wild wild card weekend what do they call it super wild card weekend now that they added the extra game they added the monday night all that stuff and it was fun it was worth it the nfl did a great job as always and we enjoyed And so I'm going to recap all the games. Of course, Friday's episode will be the day that we pick the games for this upcoming weekend. Should be more great games. But we'll talk about all the games from Wildcard Weekend first on this episode. And then we'll get to uh, Friday. And then we'll get back to the regular schedule of Monday, Wednesday, Friday next week. uh, Once we don't have uh, a Monday night game. So I wanted to wait till after the Monday night game. I was in New York also on Monday uh, before the game. The Knicks played against the Raptors I got to see that we'll talk about that a little bit later in the episode as well um the Jets by the way uh just because I can't go an entire episode or even apparently two minutes without mentioning them the Jets they are interviewing Nathaniel Hackett and after Rogers interview yesterday with Pat McAfee it seems like he's not opposed to leaving the Packers it doesn't sound like he wants to retire it doesn't seem like he's going to leave 60 million dollars guaranteed off on the table and Jason Lock and Forrest said something to me that 
is really interesting. And Jason Lockenfora has gotten things wrong in his uh, career. But if you're an insider, you're going to get things wrong. You're not going to get everything right. And so I still see him as a pretty reliable source in the NFL, uh, as reliable a source as I personally know. And I saw he said this on um, Zach Gelb's show as well. Um, and what he said was that the Packers look at a Rodgers trade almost as a salary dump where they're just going to try and have someone take on most of that $60 million that's guaranteed, have someone pick up most of that money, and that will be the gist of the trade. They're not even looking for a ton back after basically a pretty bad year from Aaron Rodgers, a 38-year-old quarterback. You're getting him for the next two seasons. I still think you can get a lot out of him in the right situation, in the right scenario if he's happy. And he said, hey, I could still be the MVP of the league. And I think he is motivated to prove people wrong. He's always been a guy who feels like he has to prove people wrong and feels like he has doubters and haters. And he's definitely a more interesting guy. But like I said, I think uh, last year, having no offseason workout, having no preseason with the team, having no training camp and all that stuff that he was busy sitting out of with the Packers, I think going to a new team and feeling like he has to prove himself and has to show himself in that new team. Uh, if that's his attitude, I think he could have real success. If his attitude is I'm going to come in and just be great because I'm Aaron Rodgers and arrogant, which maybe that will be his attitude, then I don't think he'll be great. Anyway, that's enough on the Jets and Rodgers, but the Jets uh, interviewed Nathaniel Hackett for their OC position. He was obviously the quarterback's coach in Denver, or he was the quarterback's coach in Green Bay, then the head coach, which failed terribly in Denver. Maybe two negatives make a positive because he clearly can't manage a clock and so can't Salah. So maybe the combination of the two of them, their inability to manage the clock um, will somehow lead to great clock management. I'm sure that'll work out. Um, it, it drives me insane when, and we'll talk about coaching a little bit later in the episode because we saw some awful coaching, especially when it comes to clock management in the NFL this past weekend. But it's insane to me and it drives me nuts that there are multiple head coaches. There are a lot of head coaches because I was I got into a discussion with some friends of mine um, about whether Sean Payton is a great NFL head coach or not. And I think he's a solid NFL head coach. I think people are talking about him like he's this great head coach. He's a solid NFL head coach. But when you look around the league and you see how many bad head coaches there are, Sean Payton is worth a first round pick to trade for him. First of all, you don't know what first round picks are, right? They're all unknowns. And the second thing is with Sean Payton, you know, at least he's not going to mess up basic things like clock management. And it is so frustrating to me when you sit here in playoff games and watch these offensive coordinators and head coaches who should know better and should be able to do better. And by the way, if they can't, then hire someone who can, like Nathaniel Hackett did ultimately do with Denver, uh, which was hire someone to manage the clock for him. Because if you can't stay on top of it, find someone else who can. Because I watch this stuff at home, and this is so elementary. This is stuff that I could do when I'm playing Madden. And it, it is so frustrating that head coaches can't do it. So just that would be an upgrade for if a guy like Sean Payton over a lot of coaches in the league, which is really frustrating. And I'm not saying I know more than them or I'm smarter than them or I could be a better NFL head coach. I can't. I, I get that. But uh, these guys are incredibly smart. They worked ex extremely hard to get there. And we saw what a guy who, by the way, knows a ton more football than I'll ever know in my life in Jeff Saturday, but he just wasn't head coach material. And we saw what that looked like um, for in the Indianapolis Colts. So I'm not saying that I could do this better than them, but that's another argument I got into on Twitter with someone, someone who I'd never heard of before, uh, but he's got a blue check mark and people seem to think he's famous. Um, I could pull up the name real quick, but the argument essentially was uh, whether you have to have 
been there or have knowledge of the situation in order to criticize. His name's Michael Silver. I don't know. Either way, the point is that Michael Silver was making fun of Rex Ryan for going after Brandon Staley. And the thing is, yeah, but then what's the, the parameter? Because Rex Ryan doesn't have as many or his regular season record is worse than Brandon Staley's regular season record as of now. So like now he can't criticize him, then no one can criticize anyone ever, right? It's just, I don't know. Uh, but my point is that, yes, I wouldn't be a great NFL head coach, nor am I saying that I would be. Uh, maybe I could be one day, but I don't think as of today, I would be better a better head coach than Brandon Staley. That's not the point. The point is that I would at least know how to manage a clock, I think, until there's all these other things on your plate and all that. I get that, but it's just frustrating for fans to watch at home. Anyway, that's that rant. Um, back to my previous rant that's unrelated to anything that I wrote in my notes or anything I wanted to talk about on this podcast and that was the whole Nathaniel Hackett thing well here's the thing about Nathaniel Hackett if the Jets get Nathaniel Hackett you have to know that you're getting Aaron Rodgers because the last team that got Nathaniel Hackett thinking they were going to get Aaron Rodgers was the Denver Broncos and how'd that work out they overpay for Russell Wilson both in trade value and also in uh, the contract that they gave him and ultimately that did not work out extremely well uh for the green bay or for the denver broncos so that was the last team that thought they were going to get hackett and that meant they'd get rogers so the jets if you're going to get hackett like i said uh you have to be sure that you get aaron Rodgers. um the odds by the way are up for a few players some interesting odds because once i'm on the topic i will read the odds to you on uh, a bunch of players and where they might play next season uh for tom brady the best betting odds are the las vegas raiders at plus 150 um, which is interesting to me because um, I just think that uh, I saw Lock and Fora said that also, that he thinks he's going to go to Las Vegas. I don't know if he'd go to Las Vegas, but that this is uh, on DraftKings, by the way. Tampa Bay is plus 300 for him to stay put. The Niners have the third best odds at plus 350. The Patriots going back and the Dolphins are uh, plus 750. These are Those are tied. I like the Dolphins at plus 750. Uh, the rest of the list, the Jets are plus 800, and then the Giants plus 1,200. The Titans are also plus 1,200, and then 1,800 um, and 2,000 are Seahawks and Washington. Um, let's go DeAndre Hopkins. DeAndre Hopkins' odds are out there. The Packers actually have the best odds. I guess that's if Rodgers stays, uh, plus 350. The Patriots are plus 450. The Giants are plus 750, which you, you like to hear that if you're a Giants fan. Yeah, they could use an extra wide receiver. Kansas City, uh, who doesn't have the best skill position players after trading away uh, Tyree Kilder, plus 500. Uh, Dallas is on here. The Jaguars, by the way, the Ravens are plus 1,400. So no confidence that the Ravens will go after a... Um, a wide receiver, and I don't see why there would be any confidence. Derek Carr, the best odds are the Jets at plus 400. The Colts are right behind them at plus 425. He seems like a very Colts-like quarterback, so I get that. But the whole reason I was doing this is to tell you that the Jets have the best odds today at getting Lamar Jackson at plus 250. Um, those are the best odds. Atlanta is plus 350, and then Vegas and the Panthers are both plus 750. I do like uh, the Panthers at that number. Um so that's uh, just a little update if you're wondering on the gambling side of it, what Vegas thinks. Vegas generally knows somehow they have eyes and ears and all this stuff. So when they put these things out, they're usually pretty accurate. So they think that the most likely for the Jets would be for them to get Lamar. And then second most likely is for them uh, to get uh, Derek Carr. Okay. Um, but like I said, the Jets, it was a little bit of a surprise that they'd interview Nathaniel Hackett after the terrible season he had with Russell Wilson. Um, but that might be a play for Aaron Rodgers. All right. To wild card weekend, and I'm going to start uh, 
on Monday with Monday Night Football and then work my way backwards uh, to the previous games. So let's start with Dallas at Tampa. Um, Yeah, a lot to talk about in this game. And all year, Dallas was a fantastic football team most of the year. What were they, 12-5 and on the season? They had a couple of duds in there. And definitely Dak Prescott the last few weeks did not look like the best version of himself. And all year... Tampa Bay and the Bucs were awful, and Tom Brady was not good enough, and the receivers weren't good enough, and these were all things that we knew, and yet everyone went into the game saying, well, we trust Tom Brady because he's Tom Brady, and he has the name Tom Brady, and so it's just going to be Tom Brady, and that's it. And even in the first half, and even down 24, and even Joe Buck and Troy Aikman talked about this, is you're not going to rule out Tom Brady until it became abundantly clear you had to rule out Tom Brady. Everyone thought that Tampa would figure out a way. It's the first time in Brady's career that he loses to Tampa. He loses, or it's the first time in Brady's career that he loses to Dallas, rather. He loses 31-14. to It wasn't close. Dak Prescott on the first couple of drives looks awful, not close on a couple of passes, and then he pulled it together and played the best game I've seen Dak Prescott play maybe all year, maybe since that blowout game that they had. I don't remember who it was. I guess Indianapolis where he piled on in the second half. But even that game, I didn't think he was as good. He was flawless after the first two drives in this game. Absolutely flawless. And then early on, Brady was trying to get in rhythm. You could see that Brady's doing the same thing he was doing all year. And this is what he was doing when he was when he had those big comebacks, teams were playing that prevent defense against him and he was getting everything underneath. And that's what he was trying to do early. The short passes, the screen passes, the quick plays, just getting rid of the ball, not not, not waiting for plays to develop and get hit. And Dallas was on it. They knew that he wanted to go short. They played up and they were flying to the ball. Every time there was a short completion, Brady was completing some of those passes. But every time there was a completion... The Dallas defense with Micah Parsons and everyone else was flying right to the football and rallying and making the tackles. And that is why eventually the Bucs had to change up their game plan and had to throw further down the field. That didn't work either, by the way. Brady in the game, by the way, 35 of 66 uh, and 351 yards looks fine, but he was not good in this game. He didn't want to get hit. He held on. He didn't want to hold on to the ball. He was throwing it. It, it, There was no time for him to throw it downfield because the defense was right in his face all day, um, so he didn't, and he didn't want to. He didn't care to throw the ball downfield because he just didn't want to get hit. So he was escaping pockets. He was being rushed out, and that interception right after, of course, Joe Buck talks about no turnovers in the red zone as a Tampa Bay Buccaneer for Tom Brady, and then of course immediately, and once he said that, I knew, and I said to myself, oh, he's definitely throwing a pick here. He throws that pick that was like a Zach Wilson pick. It was just an awful awful interception whereas if you're Tom Brady there's no way you can throw that if you're a competent NFL quarterback just from being smart enough knowing the game you should know that you should never make that throw if you if you're going to throw it out of the end zone uh, which some people speculate that's what he was trying to do then you know you got to get it out of the end zone it doesn't make sense and it looked to me that Tom Brady in this game just didn't look like the same guy that he was even at points throughout this season and it was the first time that I really looked at him and said oh my God, is he done? Like, is he actually going to retire? Is this actually what's going to happen? We just went through the different gambling odds for him to be elsewhere next year. And I do think Miami and the Jets are all desperate teams that would definitely want him, right? But do you want Tom Brady? I don't know after watching that game. And I know it's one game, but the whole season was really bad. And I know Todd Bowles is not a great coach. I know they had no running game. I know they had no O-line. But I don't know. He doesn't look like he wants to play anymore so much. 
him not wanting to get hit, him not wanting to throw downfield because he doesn't want to hold the ball for the extra split second, that's not the guy that you want. And that interception, and maybe you chalk it up to a bad night, but that interception was bad. And it kind of reminded you this game of his last game in New England against Tennessee in the playoffs. And I know he came back since then and won a Super Bowl and looked like a totally different guy when he first got to Tampa. But I don't know if he's going to come back again and do that again. That game, he's now three years older. I don't know. It doesn't feel like this is something that can happen. The other story in this game, aside from Dak Prescott and how incredible he was um, and how awful Tom Brady was, was Brett Maher. Brett Maher, and this is just typical Cowboys fashion, and this is why a lot of people thought early on that the Cowboys were still going to lose this game because it would be typical Cowboys for them to miss four extra points and that to end up coming back to haunt them. But he hits the last field goal, the last extra point, after they decide to keep the offense on the field for fourth down because they don't trust him to hit a chip shot. He, They get the touchdown, and he makes the extra point and gets a sarcastic cheer from the crowd after that game was already no longer in doubt. Um, but that's a problem going forward in the playoffs. If this guy is going to be like that, that's not going to bode well for you. What does bode well is the defense, even on grass, even on the road, looked like this defense was awesome. That's the one thing. That's why they say defense wins in the playoffs because defense can travel. And people thought that this was going to be the first defense ever that maybe can't travel, quote unquote, because they are so used to playing on turf and that is quicker. But no, uh, it sounds like they are able to travel. Um, and it looked like it for sure because they were so quick. They were so much faster than everyone else on the field, this Dallas defense. And Dak Prescott, credit where credit is due. I've ripped him. People in the media have ripped Mike McCarthy. And he was awesome. He was every bit as awesome as he can be. By the way, Brady said in his post game, um, he had an interesting comment where he's like, you know, I'm just going to take some time. I love the organization, but I'm going to let them know what I'm going to do. I don't know what the next step is, but I have to take some time and think about it. You know who said the same thing in his post-game press conference five minutes after getting knocked out and not making the playoffs? And by the way, this just in, the Cowboys are sticking with Brett Maher. So literally, as I spoke about it, I got an update on my phone. Um, Aaron Rodgers said the same thing as Tom Brady in his post-game press conference, but I doubt the media will look at it the same way the way they look at Rodgers and Brady. It's just funny how two different players can get covered so differently uh, depending on what your slant is towards him. And like I said, does anyone want him at this point when he talked about, I don't know what I'm going to do? Like with Rodgers, we said that. Why can't we say that with Brady? Is he holding the organization hostage like we said about Rodgers? Maybe he is. I don't know. But if you are, especially San Francisco, who's on that list, like why would you have Brock Purdy and if you don't have Brock Purdy, if that's who you decide you don't want to stick with him, you go to Trey Lance. I think that would be a mistake. But even if you don't want either one of those guys, you still have Jimmy G. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. And I don't think Jimmy G will be in uh, San Francisco. I think if they're smart, they'll stick with Brock Purdy. But why would you bring in an old Tom Brady when you have two guys who are clearly young and clearly capable and a guy who clearly showed you he can win in the playoffs too in Brock Purdy? Like, why would you now bring in Tom Brady? It just It doesn't make sense to me. But at the same time, you're never going to count him out, right? And there's going to be a desperate team that's going to bring him in. You know he's going to be playing in the NFL if he wants to this coming season. And somebody's going to bring him in and pay him a lot to do it. I don't know what that means, though, for that team, if that team's going to be successful or not. I really don't. Because he looked like a corpse in that game. And yet, still don't count him out. It was actually really funny, uh, Bill Simmons having to process this for the first time in his life 
because he was on the podcast with his cousin Sal and he's like, well, I don't know. There's Brady. How, how do we look at Brady now? Uh, can he do it? Like he's this team has been so bad all year. And Sal's like, oh, we've been talking about this for 100 years now. You just don't you've never been on this side of it. The betting against Brady side because you were always just a Patriots fan. Now you're seeing the other side of it where it's like everything tells you that you should count Brady out. And then it's Tom Brady, so you just can't count him out. Um, and so that remains the story, and it'll be another story in the offseason. Uh, like I said, credit to Dallas and credit to the NFC Beast. The NFC East had a winner of the division that was 7-9. and nine. Washington was 7-9, and nine, won the division only two years ago. And of the four remaining NFC teams, three of them are from the NFC East. So uh, really impressive, and shout out again to Dallas. Credit to them. Uh, and look... The path for them, it's not even that crazy to conceive that they maybe can go with their defense into Tampa or into uh, San Francisco, actually, and contain that offense a little bit. And their offense looked really good. So maybe they can put up some points on the San Francisco defense who's looked like they've gotten exposed to the last three weeks. Uh, Dallas, everyone talks about the moment that they peak, which is always like some point during the regular season. I think their peak was probably the Indianapolis game. I don't know. This Dallas team may actually be different and may actually be really good. And we'll get to my power rankings of the remaining playoff teams a little bit later and talk about that then. All right. From Monday night, we go to Sunday night and a game that a lot of people are talking about, especially locally, a game that I worked and it was Baltimore against the Cincinnati Bengals in Cincinnati. Um, the Bengals win 24-17 and early it seemed like it was going to be a blowout. Cincinnati goes up 9-0. They get the pick. They do miss the extra point. There's the terrible penalty that extends the drive on Marcus Peters. And then there is the John Harbaugh interview. And a lot of people were reacting to it on social media, where essentially the interview is 25 seconds with Melissa Stark. She goes, hey, John, you talked about discipline. What do you think about that penalty? He's like, that can't happen, but it's not going to happen. We're going to be good. This is when it's 9 nothing, mind you, at the end of the first quarter. She says, well, we said we might see Anthony Brown in this game. Uh, Huntley throws an interception. What about that? He's like, can you just let us play the game? Okay. Yeah. We're just going to play the game. We're going to be fine. Thank you. And he walks away and people were like, Oh, he got snippy with her. He got a little feisty, whatever it was. If you've been following and working with this team, like I've been for the last two months, I'd say at this point. Um, and I've been working with them for longer, obviously, but for the last two months now, John Harbaugh has been this way with the media locally. He's been when it a couple months ago, it was the end of the bar comment where ah, I'm going to leave that conversation for you guys for the end of the bar talk or the other comments he said, or when he talks about Lamar and they ask him about Lamar for the 9,000th time and he was getting, nope, yeah, nope, just quick, short answers and kind of feisty with the media and him talking about, well, I don't care what people say outside the organization, all those things. We've been seeing this for weeks and weeks now. And it came out in the public, and I think over the last two months, and really the last two years, if you think about what a tough couple of seasons it's been for John Harbaugh, having to manage so many different things, play three quarterbacks and more. I think it was four or five quarterbacks that they've had to play over the last two years. The different things with the injuries, um, the Lamar contract negotiations, everything that's hung over him and ended up falling on him. At that moment when I watched that, I was like, oh my God, does John Harbaugh want to leave? Would it be crazy to conceive that he leaves Baltimore? I don't think he will, but it just, in that moment, it hit me like he seems like he really needs a break and he needs to be away. And when we talked about a couple weeks ago that he rested all his players and it was almost like he was mailing it in, the fight that they put up in this game tells you that he's an incredible head coach and they're not mailing it in. But in that moment, in the first quarter, at the end of the first quarter, when he gave that interview, I was like, 
oh my god, he might just be done. He might just want a break at this point. Just take a couple years off from football, from the NFL. That's what it seemed like. Um, and then ultimately, they play an incredible game. In the post-game press conference, he pulled it all together. And he gave, you know, he talked really well. And he was actually, uh, spoke eloquently and just was calm and just kind of praised his team and his players like he always does. And it reminded me why he's such a great head coach. But how did we get to that point? Um, the team showed up. Adafi Owe, Kyle Hamilton, the second year and first year rookie player, uh, really pulled through on the defensive side. J.K. Dobbins, coming back from the injury, looked as good as he's looked by far since he's come back from the injury. He was awesome. He scores also. He right, right, he ran right down the Cincinnati Bengals' throat. That was the game plan. Just turn around and hand it to him every single time, the whole game. And eventually we get to this point, the big play in the game. It's 17-17, third and goal from the two-yard line. It's the ninth play of the drive. It's the fourth quarter. They ran already ran seven plays seven times on the drive where this was going to be their seventh round of the drive and the Sam Hubbard play. So first of all, I don't understand this play call, Greg Roman. You're at the two yard line. It's third down. You kept turning around and handing it off to JK Dobbins and it worked the entire game. Why stop now? Why put the ball in the hands of a guy to make that decision for him to think he's going to jump over. Now they said after the game and this admittedly the play was for him to go down and for him to go low for Tyler Huntley not to jump over the top and reach the ball over. Yes, that's what they said after the game. Both Harbaugh said it and Tyler Huntley admitted it. But in the moment during that play for a player to think I could just reach over and and he saw Trevor Lawrence do it the night before. You're not thinking, oh, I need two full yards. You're not thinking, oh, how am I going to get there? I'm going to fumble. That's not how you think as a competitor. You think, I'm going to make a play for my team. I'm going to get there. Maybe he didn't see the opening down low, and he's like, I I need to make a play for my team and decide to go up high. That is a problem because your offensive coordinator put your player in that position. He should have never been in that position to make that play. And so why make that play call if, if you didn't want him to go up and do that? If you want him to go low, then just turn around and hand it off. And then if you get a yard, then on the next play, you could do the QB sneak or maybe you would have gotten in already. But instead, it falls perfectly into Sam Hubbard's lab, which I don't even know what he was doing behind the whole play. Somehow he got behind the entire play and credit to Mark Andrews. Mark Andrews running back with him, almost tackled him from behind a really incredible just... I think it was Gus Edwards who was on the field who kind of slowed down, held up. Um, But real credit to Mark Andrews there on that play. And after that, and they talked about this in the media afterwards, Roquan Smith said, they said, what's the, you know, how do you recover from a play like that? Because that was just such a game-changing play. He's like, well, we go out and play defense. And that's what they did. Joe Burrow still couldn't do anything on offense. The Ravens had multiple opportunities, had a few more opportunities to go score. And again, it was Greg Roman because with 11 minutes remaining in the game, and they get the ball back, and they're still only down one score, right? It's right after this play. Somehow, they decide to go back to the air and start throwing the ball, and after a sack on first down, they run for 10 yards on second down, but now it's third and seven, and they go three and out. Like, how do you not turn around? You just had a drive of nine plays. The defense is still on the field. Cincinnati's defense never got a break, right? Because you just ran the ball directly down their throat. They never got a break because they had to run back that touchdown. So they had the kickoff to recover. That's it, the extra point in the kickoff. And now they're right back out on the field, Cincinnati's defense. And you give them a break by throwing the ball. If you turn around and hand the ball off on first down, I guarantee you, you would have extended that drive. And that would have been the move. Just keep running the ball and you have 11 minutes. It's not like there was three minutes left. And now the next time you get the ball, yes, there's less time. And now you have to start throwing the ball. 
really two times later they had to start throwing the ball. And still you almost had a chance because they go down the field. And by the way, the clock management at the end of the game, I do agree with what Harbaugh said. If they don't take the holding penalty and if they don't, uh, if we're, and if they get any completions over the middle of the field, then the clock management, how they did it actually makes sense. They still were inches away from tying the game with a James Prochet uh, almost catching that. I don't know if Harbaugh would have gone for two with the new um, overtime rules. I think Harbaugh might have gone for two to just try and end the game as opposed to sending it to overtime. Uh, but they still almost win the game. And just an impressive performance from the Ravens. Like, you come out of this game and you think about what this defense did and what the just turning around and running the ball, what the toughness of this team did. And people talk about this all the time, how sometimes teams look at the quarterback not being there. And we heard what Sammy Watkins said in the media. Um, and by the way, Lamar was actually not at the game, which is crazy. And we heard what Watkins said in the media about um, him not being there. It's unacceptable. And Watkins said he should have been there. J.K. Dobbins after the game said, you should have handed the ball off more to me. I'm the number one running back. How do you only hand it to me 13 times? And he's right on that drive, especially they should have handed it to him. And uh, J.K. also said after the game, he's like, yeah, if Lamar was there, we would have won. And that's not a shot at Huntley as much as it's a shot at Lamar. And I think the team as a whole kind of rallied around that. We're like, hey, Lamar's not here. We don't need him. We're going to win without him. I think that was a big part of what this Ravens team did and why they all rallied around each other and rallied together. And yet they come up short and it wasn't because they got outplayed by the other team, really. It was because of one play. And it sucks for a guy like Tyler Huntley uh, because he played so well. He played well the entire game. And then one play is going to define uh, his entire game. And when people talk about defense winning championships, this is what they look to. They look at the Ravens and they look at this team and they say, wow, defense wins championships. And yet with all that said, you can say defense wins championships. You could say you can turn the ball and hand it off ground and pound and that can win you a Super Bowl. But I don't just don't know if that's true anymore in the AFC. The way the AFC is now, I don't see that being true because look at the quarterbacks in the AFC. Look at the teams you have to beat. How can you tell me that defense is going to win you a championship when you look around the league and you see Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Trevor Lawrence, those five guys every single year. The Ravens did every single thing right in this game. It took every ounce of doing the right thing the entire game and not letting up for four straight quarters of continuing to hand the ball off, continuing to bleed the clock all the way down, continuing to play incredibly good defense. And yet, even with all that, they only score 17 points and they come up short in this game. There's going to be a big play. And in this game, it wasn't Joe Burrow who made the play. Right. And we'll get to that in a second. But the other team made a big play. You can't go into a game. You need to play a perfect game and also have the other team not make any big plays. And you're really going to rely on Burrow, Allen, Mahomes, Herbert, Lawrence, one of those guys not to make a perfect play or not to make one big play in a game that's going to be a game-changing play in the playoffs. They're always going to come through with that play. And so the whole notion that defense can win you a championship, I just don't know how true that is anymore. And for a team that's going to just give away Lamar Jackson like that, I don't I don't know if that's that, that if that's the right decision. Um, and maybe, by the way, this had me thinking also, when you talk about those five quarterbacks, you think they're all going to be with the same team for the next 15 years, but maybe not. I mean, we know Mahomes is locked in and Allen's got a contract, but other than that, like these guys, maybe it becomes like the NBA where we start to see, and we're starting to see it with the older quarterbacks, but maybe it happens with the younger guys that they're bouncing around team to team, a guy like Herbert, a guy like Lawrence, who maybe aren't the top, top notch, like Allen and Mahomes, maybe the teams won't lock them up and maybe we can see them kind of 
bouncing around a little bit maybe that's a possibility like nba style with the superstars there i don't maybe the nfl can actually adopt that that would actually be interesting but speaking of joe burrow um he wasn't very good in this game he didn't win you the game he didn't make the play that was able to seal the game for the Bengals at any point even once they had the lead that drive it's not like he just ended the game and but this is what we said about joe burrow all along this is what i've always been saying he finds a way to win. And when people look at him and say, oh my God, you had the tuck rule. You had all these things. You had a team that only scored three points against you in the Super Bowl. All those things that people say about Tom Brady. We're starting to hear that a little bit with Joe Burrow. Last year, we didn't hear it at all. Last year, it was like, it was fun. It was new. It was fresh. But it's going to get to the point if they start, if they go on another run this year, it's going to get to the point where it's like, oh my God, Burrow just keeps winning and he doesn't do anything to deserve to win. And he keeps winning. But Burrow said it himself. Burrow's like, hey, the window for us to win a championship is while I'm playing. Yeah, head coaches might come and go. Teammates will come and go. But as long as I'm here, we can win. And he said after they asked him also, I love him. He's a great soundbite. He's a great interview. So they asked him uh, what he was thinking when Hubbard was running back the fumble. He's like, I was just thinking, run faster and uh, get to the end zone. (laughs) That's kind of what he said. But Joe Burrow is 100% right. The window is his entire career because he's a winner. It's not always going to be because of him that they win, but somehow winners just find ways to win. And like I said with Brady, like eventually you just have to look at it and say, well, hats off to you and tip your cap because if it's happening again and again and again, maybe it is that person. Um, Lamar, like I said, wasn't there. And now the cryptic tweets, the cryptic Instagram messages, all those things. Like I said, the Jets are the gambling favorites to land him. Um, I do think the Ravens should trade him. Like, I don't know what will happen because all these cryptic things online, it doesn't mean anything. It's He's negotiating. Even his tweet before the game about him wishing that he could be there and explaining his injury, all that stuff, everything that's happening is the combination of a guy who doesn't have an agent, a guy who's trying to get the most out of his contract, a guy who feels spited by the team, and a war between a team and a player that I think is in a relationship that's completely severed beyond any repair. Um, all that said, I think the Ravens should not sign him. I think it's broken. And I think an organization like the Ravens can recover from giving up on a player who's as talented as Lamar Jackson. We talked about all those things, all the quarterbacks in the a- in the AFC uh, that you really need a quarterback like that in order to win a Super Bowl. But even with all those other quarterbacks in the AFC, I still think... Uh, you can give up on Lamar Jackson and be a winning franchise if you're the Baltimore Ravens that's built on defense, that's built on toughness, that has these two running backs. So now you have to build up the offense again. And I trust an organization like the Ravens to go find a different quarterback to replace him. So why would you give $300 million to a guy who's clearly at odds with the organization when you think that you can easily replace him? Um, that being said, I still think another team should go after Lamar Jackson and trade the assets it would take to get him and bring him in and pay him all that money. Both things can be true. A team that's has the DNA of a Jets franchise that has never gotten it right with the quarterback in the last 50 years, you have to go do that. And especially a team like the Jets who is in a position that they can win with the talent they have now. We talked about the first round picks and what they're worth earlier when we talked about, um, Sean Payton. The same thing is for Lamar Jackson. How do we know that any of the first round picks that the Jets are going to draft in the next five or 10 years or however many first round picks you're going to have to give all those players combined will not will likely not make the difference 
that a guy like Lamar Jackson can make in a game. And none of them, we know none of them individually will ever be a Lamar Jackson player or a player of the caliber of Lamar Jackson for sure. Look at the, this is what I went back and I looked at the 2018 first round pick. This is first round picks from 2019, actually, not that long ago. So I didn't want to go too far back, but like where they are and how we look at them now. Number one was Kyler Murray. I, people are saying that contract is crazy. Number two, Nick Bosa, great player. Number three, Quentin Williams, great player. Are either one of them the difference maker that Lamar Jackson is? Probably not. Then a defensive end that Oakland took or Las Vegas that I don't even know who he is. Devin White for Tampa. Like he's a solid player. He's a nice player. Daniel Jones, by the way, who some people are saying maybe you'd rather have Daniel Jones at this point over Lamar Jackson. And it's crazy to think that that's how far we've gotten, but we have gotten to that point. Josh Allen, the linebacker uh, for Jacksonville. He's a definitely a difference maker. I don't know if he's more of a difference maker than Lamar Jackson. TJ Hawkinson for Detroit, the tight end, right? Uh, he now plays in Minnesota and he's a good tight end, but he's not Lamar Jackson. Ed Oliver, Devin Bush, Jonah Williams, Rashawn Gary, Christian Wilkins. This, I mean, this is going back not that far ago, that not long ago, right? You look throughout this draft, there's Dexter Lawrence, who's really good for the Giants. Um, Josh Jacobs, who obviously the running back for Las Vegas, who's really good. Other than that, I mean, first round picks, how are we overrating them? How are we still thinking that these first round picks are worth so much when the odds are you're going to whiff on this first round pick. And I'm not saying you should whiff on your first round pick, but giving away two or three first round picks for a guy like Lamar Jackson is 100% worth it. And paying him the money that it's going to cost is worth it, especially if your team like the Jets, uh, who has young talent right now on rookie deals that you're not going to have to take care of, uh, at least in the immediate future, it opens a new window for you for the next 10 years of having a franchise quarterback that currently, or really in the last 50 years, you haven't had anything like that. And yet for the Ravens, I still believe that they're probably going to let him walk or I guess sign and trade him. And that's still the right decision. All right, enough on Baltimore and Cincinnati. Let's get to the game before that, which was a fun game. The Giants and Minnesota, the Giants win 31 to 24. And all the people, and we talked about this all year on this podcast, but all the people who talked about the Giants finally have to come to terms with one simple thing. The Giants are a really good football team. It's not that they're well head coached and they are really well coached. It's not that they are getting lucky. It's not that it's close games. None of those things. They are a really good, good, better than good, a great football team. They're now in the second round of the NFL playoffs after beating a 13 and four team in a tough environment on the road, a loud stadium, and they they really dominated that game on the offensive side. Their defense was not great in that game, but they dominated. And for all the excuses that everyone tried making to come up with that reasons why Minnesota was actually good and they're 13 and four, but yeah, the bad, you know, the negative point differential and all the things I said, I was wrong. I was trying to come up with reasons why I thought Minnesota could beat the Giants because I didn't want to pick the Giants just because everyone was picking the Giants and it seemed like it was almost too easy. But it was. It was simple. The Giants are better than the Minnesota Vikings. I'm willing to say that. And I would probably take Daniel Jones over Kirk Cousins if I could have only one of them. Daniel Jones had a historic game. 300 plus passing yards, 70 plus rushing yards and two touchdowns and no turnovers. That is historic. And for a guy whose fifth year option was declined, it's like we don't want you before the season is basically what they told him that you're just playing out a string this year is what they told Daniel Jones. Uh, and for the way he's come on, especially late in the season. And he's now forcing them to give him a huge contract extension. They almost have to give him a contract extension with the way he's played. And now the way he played in a playoff game, his first playoff game ever, he has a historic playoff game. And he's becoming a guy that you're going to start to look at as one of the better quarterbacks in the league if he can keep up uh, this play. And just the 
how smart and aware he was in the game on the last drive, not forcing it and taking that sack, knowing he needs Minnesota to burn another timeout. Like that's a play that very few quarterbacks in the league make. There aren't guys. That's, that's it's crazy because you think about it. It's almost like he's been mentally rewired by someone over the course of the season, the way he doesn't turn the ball over, doesn't run with the ball out. He protects the ball. He doesn't throw stupid interceptions. He doesn't make bad decisions, but that decision is more than that. It looks at you look at that decision to take the sack and it's like, this is a different person than he was even six months ago. And it's crazy to see that. And it's crazy to see that transformation. It's really just an unbelievable turnaround um, that I've seen from any player. And you see that it's because he's working after the game. There was a guy on, on Instagram live. I forget which player it was on the plane going nuts, talking to all the players. And then he turns the camera around and he shows Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones is already studying the Eagles on the iPad. Like that's why he is where he is. That's why this player is doing what he's doing right now. And that's why he's had the incredible run he's had the last few weeks. And I, he could definitely keep it going against Philly on Saturday. Brian Dable, I mean, how far this team has come. Somebody posted this on Twitter where they ran the back-to-back QB sneaks on third and nine from their own four, like only one year ago. And now they're this. The turnaround that Brian Dable has done for this team. He's the coach of the year, in my opinion. His awareness on every play, his play calling, everything he does, this team is incredible. And Isaiah Hodgins, give some love because all we talked about is how bad the receiver room is. And Isaiah Hodgins, a guy who the Giants got off of the Bills practice squad, has turned into a number one receiver on the Giants and looks like a number one receiver. And if you didn't know the NFL, if you came into this game and you were totally blind walking into this game and said, all right, who's the best wide receiver in this game? You would not have said Justin Jefferson. You would have said Isaiah Hodgins. And that just goes to tell you how good, well, first of all, how the defense completely shut down Justin Jefferson and they doubled him and tripled him and did whatever they had to do and forced Kirk Cousins to throw it elsewhere. Although I would have liked to have still seen Kirk Cousins try and force it to Justin Jefferson a few more times, but he didn't. And the Giants were, you didn't even have to force it how good Hodgins was in this game. And I expect him to continue to be great. And he's a guy who's going to turn himself into one of the better receivers in the league. He's on one hell of a run. The Giants score 30 points for only the second time in the last four years. And everyone said this before the game. If the Giants were going to win, it was going to be low scoring, close game, tough match, right? This is what people who were picking the Giants were saying. But they proved something. They won in a shootout by their standards. 31-24, to the defense didn't play that well, but the Vikings' defense was worse. And I said this, I I tweeted this at the time, that when the Vikings went down by two scores, I was like, it's over for the Vikings. This is exactly, they're not built to play in games and come back from behind. Now, I know they had that one incredible comeback against the awful Colts and Jeff Saturday, but other than that, they're not built to come back. They're built to play from ahead. And when they play from ahead, Kirk Cousins looks good enough and they move the chains and they get short dink and dunk passes here and it all looks good. And they can they don't have to take any risks. But the second you're playing from behind and you have to take risks, yeah, they ultimately made it a one-score game. But once they were down two, I was like, Kirk Cousins is not played because he's not going to take a risk. That's just how he is. He's not a player who's willing to take a risk and he was going to melt down once they were down two. And I don't care what looks good on the stat sheet. That's exactly what happened with Kirk Cousins. Um, It's their first loss in a one-score game all year. And the Vikings defense, this is on them. This is not on Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins is not that guy. We know that Kirk Cousins is not that guy. And he proved it on the last play of the game. Everyone's going to talk about that last play of the game, fourth and eight, and he throws it short of the sticks. Looked like he could have at least tried to force it into Justin Jefferson. He had another receiver who was open beyond the sticks. It didn't matter. He could have made a better decision and should have made a better decision, but he's so opposed to taking any sort of risk that he'll never make a decision like that. And he's never actually going to make a big play like that because he 
just won't ever take the risk. But we know that Kirk Cousins is not that guy. And that's why Minnesota's defense, how do you give up 500 yards to the New York Giants who haven't had a game like this offensively the entire season almost also against the Colts was the only time they did it ironically both teams their best games came against the Colts and the point is that your defense has to know that we can't get down two scores and they let it get to that point and they lost in this game because of how they played the Giants now move on and like I said the Giants proved something they showed something different and now if you I mean I just I went out and bet the Giants to win the NFC because if you thought the Giants needed to win in a close, low-scoring game, then you'd think eventually they won't win. But the way Daniel Jones played, the way the Saquon Barkley, they didn't even have to lean on him that heavily, the way their offense played and their defense left something to be desired. But think about it. Next game's going to be against Philly, a division opponent who they've seen twice already. They lost twice to them, but the second time was with their third stringers against Philly's top guys. Philly is very hurt. They still have Jalen Hurts coming back from his injury. You don't think the Giants will at least put together a good enough game and be capable of beating the Philadelphia Eagles on Saturday? I think they can. And then the next game, you're either playing Brock Purdy in a championship game, a kid who's a Mr. Irrelevant and has started, what, seven games in his entire NFL career, and early on in that game, didn't look like he was ready for the playoffs at all. Looked like the lights were too bright for him. And again, I trust that this Giants offense maybe can do something against that San Francisco 49er defense. Or you're playing Dallas, another division opponent. The path for the Giants to go to a Super Bowl right now looks clear as day, and it's incredible to say that. Again, think about where they were a year ago. Think about where this quarterback was, where this running back was, where this head coach was. Isaiah Hodgins, the number one receiver now. This defense, everything about this team has completely flipped in a year and it's unbelievable the turnaround that they've had and even the turnaround from early in the season when people are saying ah they, they find ways to win they're not that good even the turnaround from that point uh, is incredible what they've been able to do so congrats to the Giants do I think they'll go on a Super Bowl run like I said I put money on it but um probably not they're going to be underdogs in every single one of those games they opened as seven and a half point dogs against Philly on Saturday. So yeah, I, I think they will be underdogs in every one of those games, but I think they're more than likely that they have a good chance to win every single one of those games. And if they keep all those games close, I trust Dable to make the right call. I trust his decisions. I trust this offense. And that's something that's uh, crazy to say. Sunday, the early game on Sunday was Miami against Buffalo in Buffalo, Miami 34 or sorry, Buffalo wins 34 to 31. The Bills and Miami, it was a close game, and yet it felt like it was super boring. Like, you would have thought, oh, this game's not going to be close, it's going to be a blowout, and so this game's going to be boring. It would have been a more entertaining game if it was a blowout. That's just how I feel about this game. Watching this game was just awful. It was two teams playing so poorly, just trying to give the game away to the other side. That's what it felt like the entire game. And it confirms what I've been saying about the Bills all along. The Bills just play too risky they don't have an offense that can just drive methodically down the field and make plays like a normal offense like Patrick Mahomes like Joe Burrow in Cincinnati it's just a weird offense that they have in Buffalo where it's like they need the big plays and they right from the beginning of the game where they hit on the big home run play to Stephon Diggs it felt like okay this is what we're gonna try and do they go up 17 nothing early blah 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 all that stuff and yet they then they just let Miami hang around Miami with Skylar Thompson hang around the entire second half of the game like Josh Allen, and this is what somebody said to me. It's so interesting. Josh Allen is like Trey Young, and that's such a good comp. It's like he has these big plays, these crazy passes, these deep threes that he hits that it's like, oh my God, this guy's so good. But then for stretches at a time, he's just turnovers and bad plays. And that's what Josh Allen does. Do you know that in the NFL this season, there are only two teams who turn the ball over more than the Buffalo Bills turned the ball over? And that's the Texans and the Colts. 
those are the two worst teams in the NFL, and they also had more games played. Obviously, they each had one more game played than the Bills did, and yet they still turned the ball over. They're the only ones who turned the ball over more than the Bills. That's it. Yes. The big magic plays from Josh Allen are special, and only he can make them, and it seems like he makes them every time when you need them. But can you continue to rely on them again and again and again? And while we knew this about the offense, it seems like the defense is in shambles now. The other side of the defense, and I'm not trying to be nasty by saying this, but they're missing their safety, DeMar Hamlin. They don't have their best linebacker who was pressuring the quarterback and best in the run game also in Von Miller. They're missing key players on the defensive side, and it's starting to show at this point. You're not going to be able to beat Cincy and KC the way they played against Miami. Just period stop. You can't beat those teams if you play like this. All that said, do I believe that this team can still beat those teams? Yes, I still think they can because I could see them coming out and turning it around. And all of a sudden there's a game where Josh Allen is just magic the entire time because that's how good he is. And that's how good this offense is. But it's like sometimes he's so careless and frustrating to watch. And Miami on the other side, the game shouldn't have been close at all. The fact that there was a three-point game, the fact that they put up 31 points with Skylar Thompson, he's a really bad quarterback. And you saw this in this game. Not only is he a really bad quarterback, they had so many drops. They blew this game 17 different times. The Waddle drops, the Hill drops. And by the way, I haven't seen this take, so I'm just going to come out here and say it. But maybe the ball comes out different from a righty, Skylar Thompson, than it comes out from the lefty to a tongue of Iloa. Maybe that's why they had drops. I don't know. It's kind of something that I thought of, thought like somebody in the media might say during the game, but nobody said it. And the way they managed the clock at the end of the game, all those delay of game penalties, burning three timeouts the way they had to, like they shouldn't have been close in this game either. It was like they were trying to lose. And so in a game where Mike McDaniel loses by only three to the Buffalo Bills on the road in a playoff game, remember how that worked for the Patriots last year? It did not go well for them. They got their doors blown off by Buffalo. And that's what everyone assumed would happen in this game, especially down 17 nothing. And you think it would be a major win for Miami and Mike McDaniel to only lose by three and to put up 31 points with Skylar Thompson. And yet today it feels like Mike McDaniel should be fired because of how poorly he mismanaged this game again and again and again, the delay of games while he's sitting on the sideline vaping. Like it's crazy. And he might get fired. We talked about this a lot. Sean Payton and Tom Brady, that could be the destination. But like, it felt like both teams lost this game. It doesn't feel like there's any winner from this game. And that's, it was just such a frustrating, bad football game. Uh, and, and I'm done talking about it. Like I said, the Bills, they move on. Congrats to them. They could turn around in an instant. That's for sure. Um, but Miami, you were in that game. You had an opportunity to beat Josh Allen, to take down the Bills. And you couldn't do it, not because you didn't play well enough, because you were poorly coached in that game. That's really was the difference in the drops also. I don't know. It was wild. Speaking of bad coaching and potentially getting fired and wasting clock, we get to Saturday night and the Jags and the Chargers and one of the all-time blunders. 27-0 lead for the Chargers and they ran the ball seven times for the remainder of the game. They had multiple plays where they were snapping the ball with 14, 20 seconds left on the clock. Like, it's so simple. And we talked about this earlier when we talked about Sean Payton. Sometimes it's just so simple. You know what you have to do. You run the clock all the way down and you hand off the ball because that keeps the clock running. So Brandon Staley, do you not know that the clock continues to run when you hand the ball off? Do you not know that the more time you waste after you hand the ball off on the game clock, you have 40 full seconds of the play clock to burn? Like, I don't understand. And I know everyone's saying fire Brandon Staley today and it's easy to say. 
And it seems like he's safe, by the way, because they fired the OC. They fired a couple other coordinators. So it looks like he's safe. And I'm not one of those guys who's like, oh, my God, you have to fire him immediately. Like I said that if Mike Williams doesn't play, they should fire him. And by the way, Mike Williams not being there does make a big difference. But I'm not one of those guys who's like, oh, fire him. They made the playoffs. But now it feels like they have to. How did they not? And by the way, we talk about destinations. I said Miami. Talk about destinations for Sean Payton. Sean Payton, he's going to choose a place to go to. Wouldn't you want to live in L.A. and have Justin Herbert as your quarterback for the next 15 years? Like, doesn't that seem like that's the spot to be? And by the way, is some of this on Justin Herbert? We talked about this when it was 28 to 3. I think the face of 28 to 3 has become Matt Ryan because he was the MVP that year. And he took a sack that was really bad that knocked them out of field goal range in that game. And that was like the one play that you could look at that. If you kick that field goal, the game ends. And that's it. Basically, just Tom Brady and the, and the Patriots at the time couldn't come back in that game. Justin Herbert had a wide open Keenan Allen in the back of the end zone and overthrew him by like seven feet above his head. And if that is a touchdown, and that was, I guess, when it was 27 to something, if that was a touchdown and they score seven points there and it becomes 34 instead of 30, then that's the difference in the game. They win that game. It just would have been out of hand because he would have run out of time. There was never a turning point in this game that it felt like all of a sudden the momentum shifted to Jacksonville. Like Jacksonville was playing terribly and then they stopped playing terribly. But yes, they started playing really well, but still there wouldn't have been enough time for them to come back. If you turn around and hand the ball off, if you bleed the clock, and if you score four more points, there just wouldn't have been enough time, even though you played a terrible second half as the Chargers. But still, all those key plays, you had to make every single one of the wrong plays. You had Everything had to go wrong in order for you to lose that game, and you found a way to lose that game. And that's why I think Brandon Staley should be fired. Because you look at coaching, coaching matters. Look at Doug Peterson. Look at the other side of this. Doug Peterson on the other side playing for the win, going for two. And by the way, terrible job by the totally asleep and the snooze fest of a broadcast with Al Michaels and Tony Dungy. And by the way, that's why I wanted Al with Chris Collinsworth, just saying. But credit to Collinsworth. He was great with Tariko. Tariko was awesome in that game, but they were just totally asleep and had no idea why they were going for two in that moment. And that's the difference in coaching. You see the difference that coaching makes. You talked about Dable and now you talk about Peterson and they had Urban Meyer last year, but they go for two there right? His quarterback never quit. His quarterback, after throwing all those interceptions in the first half, was never down on himself. He came back and he played a great game. And it was a great job by Trevor Lawrence. It never felt like, and by the way, I texted in my group chat. I was like, oh, this is the part where the Chargers mess it up. And yet still, I didn't bet it. I wanted to bet it at like plus 600 or something like that, that Jacksonville would win. But there was still never that momentum shift. Like you had the key momentum changer in Kansas City against Indianapolis all those years ago or in 28-3 28-3 with the Falcons and the Patriots. In this game, you never felt that real turnover, that real difference. And yet, just chipping away, and they kept doing it. And Lawrence, that was awesome, what he was able to do. As bad as a start as you can have, and the fact that he was able to turn it around was incredible. And like I said, Doug Peterson playing for the win. They go for two, they get it. And then ultimately, they come down, kick the field goal, and win the game. Again, I don't see how you can go back to Brandon Staley, but seems like they're going to do it because at the same time, it's just in the Chargers DNA. So that's also part of it. If you know you're not going to get Sean Payton, then I understand why you keep Staley. So maybe they know that they're not getting Payton and that's why they're keeping Brandon Staley. I don't know because making a lateral move doesn't make sense for them either. Seattle and San Francisco was the first game of the playoffs and it started off nice for uh, Seattle. They were they had the lead. It looked like it was good. 
uh, people's shock. They're sticking with them. And then San Francisco dismantled them so quickly. It went from, wow, Seattle's really in this game. They're they're giving them a fight to a blowout so quickly. I don't remember anything turning into a blowout that quickly from the other team having the lead. And I mean, there's not much to talk about here. Brock Purdy, by the way, sucked in the first half, but you knew that they weren't going to rely on Brock Purdy sucking or not sucking. This wasn't a team that was going to be dependent on Brock Purdy in order to win or lose a game. Like Kyle Shanahan was never going to let it get to that, right? And that's kind of an indictment on Jimmy G that you look at that and you say, well, yeah, this team is not reliant on the quarterback. And so Brock Purdy was terrible in the first half. So they turned around and hand the ball off to Christian McCaffrey. And then when that opened things up, you were he made plays in the second half and he was great in the second half because he didn't have to be relied on to do every single thing this team was going to win with or without him. It sounds like, by the way, early on, early returns, it sounds like Gino will stay, by the way, um, in Seattle. And I'm happy for them. It's a match made in heaven for uh, Gino over there in the Seattle uh, with the Seattle Seahawks. So good for him. A great year. And maybe this sparks into maybe it's not the next 15 years, but a nice five to seven year career uh, for Geno Smith in Seattle. And maybe Pete Carroll will stick around for at least most of it, even though he's a little bit older. All right. Those are all the games. It sets up a great weekend that we're going to have this weekend. So I will give you my power rankings um, for the teams and how they look this weekend. There are eight teams, and it starts with number eight, the Jacksonville Jaguars. I think of all the teams remaining, they are still the worst team uh, of all of them. I still think they're very capable. They could be that team that surprises everyone and goes on a run. I talked about it on last episode. I still believe that. I had them on the money line. I still never really lost faith in them, even when they were down the way they were down. I still thought that they can come back and win that game. Uh, But they're that team that they have the pedigree with the head coach. They're now hot, right? It feels like, oh my God, we have some momentum after the way they came back in that game. They still have to get through Kansas City after a bye, but think about it. One team has momentum coming off of the way they won that game. The other team is coming off a bye week in Kansas City. So maybe Jacksonville, maybe I don't hate them in that game um, with Trevor Lawrence. Number seven, I have the New York Giants. The same thing with them. The momentum that they have, and they're going to go have to play Philly, who didn't look that great to end the season and then had a week off. I don't know. Uh, I like the Giants a lot, but they're number seven. Number six, and you have to give them some credit, and that's why I put them at number six ahead of the Giants and Jacksonville's Dallas. What Dallas was able to do, they have a lot of talent on both sides of the ball. We know about the running back. We know about the skill position players. We know about the defensive guys. The question mark remains Dak Prescott, but I think he answered a lot of those questions uh, in the game on Monday night. Number five is Philadelphia. Philadelphia, of all the elite teams, and it's so funny because I guess 12 weeks into the season, it felt like this was the team to beat. But right now, they look like they might not overcome these injuries. They might not overcome. And if they look better, maybe they win on Sunday and then all of a sudden, or Saturday night rather, and all of a sudden it completely flips and we look at Philly a different way. Maybe we see the MVP version of Jalen Hurts fully healthy on Saturday. But until we see that, I don't think you could put them any higher than five. Number four is Buffalo. Like I said, there are major concerns, but Josh Allen is still Josh Allen. He's magic. Number three is Cincinnati. Cincinnati played a really bad game and survived. And maybe you just chalk it up to NFC North, tough battle. That's how those games are going to be facing the same team for the second week and back to back. But I was not impressed at all with what Cincinnati did uh, against the Baltimore Ravens. And so they are number three. Number two is San Francisco. Like I said, I ranked them lower last week because I felt like, well, Brock Purdy, I don't know, maybe he turns into a pumpkin in the playoffs. Brock Purdy was awful and they still, or at least in the first half, he was awful and it still didn't matter at all. And like I said, it's not going to matter. Kyle Shanahan's never going to let it get to that point that it it falls on Brock Purdy to make a big play for them in order for their season to continue. And number one is Kansas City. Uh, 
Patrick Mahomes. That's all you need to say. And speaking of, let's rank the quarterbacks real quick. We'll start with Mahomes. I still have him at one. I have Burrow ahead of Allen at two, uh, just because we didn't see a great game from Burrow, but we don't see the mistakes and the careless mistakes that sometimes Josh Allen tends to have. So Burrow at two, Allen at three. Hurts only because we don't know what he's going to look like at four. Number five, I still have him at number five because the way he's playing the last two months and how historic the game was against Minnesota, I have Daniel Jones. Number six is Zach Prescott. Number seven is Trevor Lawrence. And number eight is Brock Purdy. By the way, uh, we talked about coaches being fired. Um, Just real quick, a lot of people were confused why Ron Rivera is not fired yet in Washington. They're trying to sell sell the team desperately. And so um, you can't fire the head coach and then, or yeah, you can't fire him, bring in a new head coach to bring in coordinators. And then when the new owner comes in, he's going to want to fire all of them and bring in a new staff anyway. So the new ownership is probably going to make the decision on, um, on what happens with Ron Rivera. I don't think they will hire a new head coach until they actually, um, have the new ownership. I don't know how that works if they can move forward, but why would anyone take that job? If you're an offensive coordinator, why would you want to take uh, a job now knowing that there's going to be a sale of the team and maybe your boss, who is the head coach, gets fired a few days later. I don't know. That's that's how I feel on that. There were a couple NBA points I wanted to get to. I was at the Knicks and Raptors game on Monday at the Garden. Uh, I have some takeaways from that game. First of all, Emmanuel quickly should be in the game to close out the games. Down the stretch, when the, the unit of five, and they've done this a few times, but I don't know why they went away from this at times uh, against Toronto. The unit that they should have closing out that games, and I know it's tough. They keep finding ways to lose these games down the stretch, and I think there's also like a disadvantage to playing at the Garden. There's a weird disadvantage uh, where the the road players they always come in, they always want to prove a point, and then they thrive on the hostility. Like it feels like a playoff game every game, and so there's almost a disadvantage at the end of these games playing at the Garden um, for the Knicks. And you talk about their ten and two on the road, their last twelve games, and you look at the home record, and it's not that. And it's like okay, maybe this makes sense actually. Um, why they struggle sometimes to close out games at home. You saw Fred Van Vliet, which by the way, it's Van Vliet. Like who, like everyone, there's articles written about this. I was sure it was Fred Van Fleet with an F, but there's literally a giant V and there's been articles saying like, it's actually Van Vliet and he has no idea why everyone calls him Van Fleet. And I was like shocked by that. I was in total shock and awe. Um, But like I said, the, the closeout lineup at the end of games they get stagnant at the end of the games. They stop playing. What's so great about the Knicks offense this year is it keeps moving. Nobody holds the ball. There's no isolation. Everyone's cutting off ball, especially when with Grimes in the lineup. But when you have Mitch standing there in the middle, just hanging out all hunched over, it doesn't help you. It's just either Randall or Jalen Brunson, who I love and I trust him. It's just one of them just dribbling, dribble, 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 dribble all the way down to like start making his move with six seconds left to go uh, in the shot clock. And then if you can't make a move, you just dump it off to someone else. And then they're stuck with the ball with like the shot clock winding down. It doesn't work. For some reason, they do it over and over and over again at the end of games. But when quickly is in the game, you have one more playmaker and actually everyone starts moving and he starts getting everyone else involved. And you should not stop playing. There's no reason to stop playing. You can play if you could take a good shot. And you saw it with the Bucks last night who started losing the lead um against uh against the same team against Toronto also and yet they they held on to the lead the reason they were able to hold on to the lead is because 
it didn't matter. Drew Holiday was like, I'm going to make a play, even if it's only with 14 seconds into the shot clock and there's still 10 seconds remaining. If I get a good shot because we were, had a good movement, then we get two points and we don't need to bleed the game out. We talked about bleeding the game out in the NFL. It's not worth it to bleed the clock all the way down if you're not going to get the points at the end of it because you're just, yeah, you bleeded 24 seconds off the clock, but you're just allowing the team, the other team, uh, to slowly come back. It was one of the worst um one of the worst officiated games I've seen. And I texted my friends before the game. I said, oh my God, we have Scott Foster's doing the game. And we know this is going to be a disaster. And uh, it turned out that way. By the way, Quickly's mom, Emmanuel Quickly's mom agrees with my point that Emmanuel should be in the game. Uh, she first thought I was sat with her. I was sat with her during the game. And she first thought I was uh, kind of just being nice, saying that Emmanuel Quickly um, should be in the game at that point. But I was like, no, no, no. That lineup is the lineup I've been saying that they should have out there. It's Quickly, Grimes, Barrett, Randall, and Brunson. Um, those five should be the five to close out games against no matter who you're playing, but especially against a team like Toronto. And I'll explain that in a minute. But uh, she was actually a really kind, really cool lady. She actually taught Emmanuel quickly how to shoot his free throws. Um, and he's one of the best free throws. He's the best free throw shooter on the Knicks. And that's maybe one of his best attributes. And she was a, a really cool lady. So it was fun to hang out with her and take in a Knicks game uh, with her. And the garden's awesome. When RJ Barrett had that dunk, there's no other place in the world that you want to be for that RJ Barrett play. And it was so interesting because as I saw him coming down the court, I was like, oh my God, he's about to dunk this. And I took out my phone and started videoing and I get him coming down the lane because he just had this look in the, his eye as he was running down. You could go, I posted the, the video on Twitter, but um, he had this look in his eye as he's coming down the lane. Um, and it was just like, oh my God, he's about to dunk this. I, like you could just tell, like he had that he was about to dunk. Um, I, by the way, I agree with Brunson and what he did. I agree with him pulling up at the end. I, I really do. Uh, don't call timeout there. That was smart by Tibbs. Don't call timeout uh, because you don't want the defense to get set. And Brunson, the team was on the second of a back-to-back. They were exhausted. They were in foul trouble. There was no reason to try and tie that game. You had a wide open look at three to just win the game right then and there. And he almost hit it back iron. It was right on line, but it hit the back iron and that was it. That's the game. And you want your best player and you trust your most clutch player in Jalen Brunson to take that shot. And he did it. And he just missed it. That was the end of overtime. Um, by the way, RJ Barrett was definitely fouled on that last play and they, he should have had a free throw to win the game with 0.6 seconds remaining on that dunk. Scotty Barnes literally yanks his arm down and because RJ Barrett is so strong, it didn't really affect him. And maybe because of that, um, he was And by the way, it just goes to show you that when all these players, when they get affected, quote unquote, by those by those grabs, it's just a flop because uh, they're all strong enough to be able to keep playing. But when it's the game on the line, he can't you know, he can't go to the free throw line there. He needs to finish the dunk. So he doesn't let it allow it to affect him back to Mitchell Robinson, um, Mitchell Robinson. We've seen this a few times now with these bigger players who can shoot. Mitchell Robinson refuses to step out on big guys. And it's becoming a problem because he refuses to step out on the big guys. And what ends up happening is they're open for three and somebody has to then scramble to try and close out on them. And then if they swing it, there's other guys who are open for three and everyone ends up swinging. And now the Knicks are scrambling. And even if the shot ultimately is missed, whatever shot they end up getting, now they are in a poor position to get the rebound. And there were so many offensive rebounds and second chance points. So Mitch, you're not getting the rebound, but you're standing in the middle to protect the paint and get rebounds, but you're not doing that either because the rest of the defense is scrambling around you because you won't step out on a guy like Siakam. And Toronto is a really interesting team. They're not super talented, but they have Barnes, they have Siakam, they have OG Anobi. All these guys are such incredible length. They create such incredible mismatches for every other team in the NBA. If they can figure it out with Nick Nurse, uh, how to play and how to play a sound team game, 
Um, I like their point guard in Van Fleet. Um, I said it again, Van Vliet. <laughs> there it is. It just feels weird saying that. It feels weird coming out of my mouth. Um, but but if, if they can get to the point that they are putting it all together, like they should be one of the better teams in the league because those three guys, and really they have a couple other guys off the bench, even Gary Trent um, is another guy who just has incredible length, but they also are all shooters and all ball handlers um, and all incre- incredibly athletic. So they really do. I, I think I don't think they should be trading any of those guys because I think they can create a, an exceptional mismatch uh, for a lot of teams around the league, the way they're built. Um, I was in, I was impressed by Scotty Barnes seeing him in person. He was, you know, He's up and down. He's like a second-year player. He's not taking the step that a lot of people expected him to take. Um, but I, I was still impressed with him. One more thing in the NBA, and it's scoring around the league. And everyone talks about the scoring numbers, and everyone's all impressed by it. And they're like, oh, this is crazy. When you look at the scoring numbers around the league, scoring is way up around the league. And so how do we look at this? How does this change the way we take in the game? And take last night. I think there were only four or six games around the entire NBA I think there were four games on the schedule last night in the NBA. And here were some of the scoring numbers. Van Vliet, like we talked about, had 39. Gary Trent Jr. had 28 himself. Grayson Allen had 25 points. Drew Holiday had 37. Kellen Johnson had 36 as the Spurs snapped their five-game winning streak. And the Nets are now 0-3 without KD. And Bede had 41. Dame had 44. And Jokic had 36. So scoring is way up everywhere. It's because of the three-point shooting. It's because of the pace. So when you talk about historically, when you talk about LeBron and his scoring, when people are going to start to look back at Kobe and be like, oh, wow, Kobe, what kind of season is he having? Like, everyone has those seasons now. Like, your seventh, eighth, tenth best player in the NBA is going to have seasons like Kobe. And Kobe was, yes, the best player in the NBA for a big stretch of his career. People look at Tim Duncan and they're like, oh, what, Tim Duncan? Like, look at those numbers. The point is that... uh you can't do that. The NBA, the scoring is way up. I'm not sure how we think about it, how we look at it now. It's different than stats changing in baseball or other sports with extensions of games and all those things. The scoring is way different. And the way we look at scoring today cannot possibly be compared uh, to scoring of the past. So I'm not sure what we do with that fact. But when people are like, oh, yeah, 35 last night, it's not as impressive anymore as it used to be. It's just not. Um, that's, I mean, think about it. Toronto had. 74 points in the first half against Milwaukee, a team that's known for like a, to be a defensive team uh, last night. So I don't know what you do with him for that information, but do what you please. Um, next episode is going to be on Friday. Like we said, uh, it should be a good episode. We'll pick all the games. It should be another great weekend of NFL football. Until then, this was my recap for all the wild card rounds. It was fun. I hope you enjoyed. If you like the podcast, please share it with a friend. I appreciate it. Um, and until next time, I'm going to go watch the next game. They play at the Garden again tonight against Washington. Until then, please like, subscribe. Uh, If you're new here, you can subscribe. Send it to a friend. Share it with a friend. Tell me you like it. I love hearing from people. I love hearing feedback, positive or negative, constructive uh, or otherwise. If you just want to tell me you like it, it's all greatly appreciated. And go to betterhelp.com if you you need a little help, someone to talk to. We can all use it at times. And use my name, Rami. It'll help me out. All that good stuff. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate all of you. See ya. With the best nights of my life You got the light that always shines I miss the way that you move and the way I get high When you take me to your eyes Like I'm standing in the sky I see your subway cars and your old graffiti I breathe your air when I land in another city I'll be that one that
that's got you printed on my bones Yeah, you're all I know Everywhere I go, oh, oh, I ain't changed it oh, oh, oh Always on my Flying on the highline With the sidewalks burning We pray for rain in July I want the Yankees 99 yeah. And the Knicks on a sold out night When the curtains close And the Broadway streets are alive hey. I need your heartbeat close Don't you ever leave me And I breathe your air When I land in another city And I'll be that one that's got you on my bones Yeah, you're all I know Everywhere I go Oh, 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 I change it Oh, 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 always on my I was God sent. I used to hit them courts, y'all didn't prospect. Take them long walks on my time spent. Just a kid with that empire, stay the mindset. Kick flipping off a blind deck. Dipping from the New York City's finest, yeah. Said I've been up on my New York shit. Walking down the block with my New York bitch. I can never leave my city, ain't nothing like it. Even if I do, though, I can never hide it. Top down on the west side when I'm driving. East side be the only side that I'm riding. I'm still here.